Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Before I launch into my message this morning, I want to ask you to do something. Just uh, pause for a second. Look around this weird place that we're in. I remember the first time that we even occurred to us to ask these folks if we could use this building. It was the Hail Mary of Hail Marys. If you look around, I mean, we're not exactly filling this place out, are we? So I was like, how is this going to happen? But God did this miracle, and here we are. And I imagine for a lot of us, this won't be the last time we're in this building. But the next time you're here, you'll probably be looking at a circus or cheering on a sports team. But you'll always remember, won't you, that for a couple months in the summer of 2021, we worshiped God in this place because he provided it. If you ever have doubts about whether God will watch over us or take care of us through all the ups and downs of life or as a church, remember this as a touchstone. My friends used to tell me all these miracle stories of how God provided this or that at the exact moment they needed it. I'm like, why doesn't that happen to us? (laughs) But it happened. And I will always hang on to this place. I drive past it quite often. And when I see it, I always remember God really provided this place at the most critical time for us. And He did it in the most miraculous way. There's no way we should be in here for the paltry sum we're paying each week. And it is the grace of God to us. And we're so thankful to the folks at Now Arena too. They were extremely generous to us. So I want you to just soak it in for a second because you won't look at this at Sunday worship all the time. This will be the last time, at least for a while. Today we're also saying goodbye to a sermon series. We've come to the last message. And by the way, I tested the negative this morning, so I'm taking this thing off. We've come to the end of a sermon series. And this will be the last message on the series on the Lord's Prayer. And before I dive right in, I want to say something to you uh, just from my heart as your pastor. I don't believe God laid this series on our hearts so that we would learn and understand and agree more about prayer. But that God would drive us, lead us, to actually pray more and more earnestly as we live this life. And this is so important to me because I think there is such a tendency as we get older and more resourced and experienced to want to live life on our own wits, on our own strength, just do it the best we can. And most of us are doing exactly that. But we are missing out on the greatest thing that God has provided, which is Himself. And if you're living your life without praying much, even if you can't see it, it is showing in your life. It's showing in mine. So I pray that the fruit of this series will not be understanding, but it will be more prayer. And not just quantity, that prayer will be your first and greatest response to the things that happen to us in this life. We've come to the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. And if you look at it, it says... I'm not sure what's going on with this thing. It's, uh, yeah, it's not working again. Sorry, guys. Is it work? I, did I just do that? Because I pushed it like three times. Okay. It says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the New International Version. 
And it's something familiar to us, but we've got to unpack it because if you understand this wrong, it can have devastating effects on your spiritual life. There's a simple way of understanding this that I think is appropriate, and it's probably the way we'll mostly understand it when we're praying it. And I think Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible called The Message really puts it well. Uh, is, it, is it delayed reaction? Is that what's happening? I don't know. I'm pushing it, and it's like 10 seconds later. All right. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it, and I think this is so good. Keep us safe from ourselves and from the devil. And what he's saying, this is the most basic, essential interpretation of this, is, Lord, this is a dangerous world spiritually, and we have twin dangers we're facing. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy, and the threat to our souls comes from right inside of us, and sometimes it comes from God's very powerful enemy, whom we know as the devil, the evil one, or Satan. And the reason we pray this is an acknowledgement that we don't have the power to to win that fight on our own. Sometimes we think we do. I remember um, this leader made us watch The Exorcist when I was a freshman in college. I didn't want to watch it. (laughs) I hate horror movies, but he kind of made us. And we watched it, and his, his argument was, it's so you understand the true nature of spiritual warfare. And then I remember at the end of it, he's like, do you think you're strong enough to fight the devil? And I remember thinking, no. That movie made it worse. I didn't, there's no way I'm strong enough. And I still believe that. I am not strong enough. Even after 26 years of serving, I hope faithfully as a pastor, if the devil walks in here, I'm not going to be like, let's go, bring it. I'll be cowering with the rest of you because he's powerful. And I'm not. And you are not. This prayer, this part of the Lord's Prayer is an acknowledgement that we don't have the power to fight evil on our own. And that's something really important to say. That doesn't mean we shouldn't combat evil, we shouldn't take a stand, but we have this idea today in our general society that we can conquer evil if we just join our hands. We can beat the evil one if we just believe. And the honest truth is we can't. We don't have that power But God does. And so we're taught to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. I watched this, uh, whoa, whoa, what happened there? Okay, so I I watched this, uh, there we go. I watch this YouTube channel from time to time. Any of you guys watch this? It's uh, Oliang and Namian. It's an ASMR uh, channel where this guy, he has two pit bull terriers, and he feeds them, they call it barf. I don't know, it's an acronym for something, but it's raw food, like giant animal parts and chunks and pieces, and he just switches it up, and he'll feed them stuff like duck heads, that's, that's a duck head at the very front there, and little eggs, bird's eggs, and chicken feet. They love chicken feet, and I love listening to them crunch chicken feet in their powerful jaws. The reason I bring this up is it's funny because you watch this, and there's these two dogs, they're so cute, and he'll, he'll just throw a chicken foot in their mouth and they just crunch it. But once in a while he throws something new and, and the, the black dog will always just devour it. He's, he loves eating. He'll eat anything. But the white dog, you, you give her some certain things. She literally does it. She goes, turns her head away. She refuses it. He keeps trying to stick it in her mouth. She refuses. And it's hilarious to me that even dogs, even a pit bull that'll eat anything are picky eaters. I never thought of dogs as having preferences and tastes. 
But it's a reminder to me that that's a universal thing in this world. And temptation's a funny thing because it's universal, but it's also really specific. Isn't it funny how some things appeal so much to you and have no interest for the person that you're so connected to? You know, if I'm sitting in a room, we're having a conversation, and someone is playing Call of Duty on the TV next to us, I will not be fully engaged in that conversation. My wife will be totally zeroed in on the conversation. I'll just be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, man, that was a good shot. I can't help myself because I'm drawn to that thing. There are certain substances, foods, activities. Like when I see a basketball court and there's a basketball laying on the floor, and I'm not the world's greatest player, but I cannot resist that ball and that hoop. I've got to pick it up, at least take a shot. It's impossible for me to resist that. I don't know why. For each of us, we have certain things that we were wired really at birth and then over the course of our lives, we, we just are so drawn to them that at times we feel powerless like we're on autopilot. It's not even a choice anymore. And I believe this is the nature of the way that temptation works. Is everyone's tempted by something, but we're not all tempted by the same things. And it's really easy to become very prideful and secure because oh, why, do you, why are you so weak to that? You just love this kind of stuff so much. I don't get it. But you have your stuff too. And so it's important for us to acknowledge the universal nature of temptation and the human weakness that makes temptation so powerful in our lives. A good working definition, temptation, is the desire or enticement to do something that we know is wrong or unwise or destructive. Now the thing is, we know it's wrong or unwise or destructive. We know it as we're doing it, but we still do it anyway. We want to do it because along with the destructiveness or the, the wrongness of it, there's a pleasure that comes with the damage. We know this. I don't know what it is. for. Maybe, maybe it's the temptation to have that second helping of dessert, or it's a temptation to lose your temper with another driver, or maybe it's a temptation to vandalize public property. I'm sharing my testimony here. Sadly, I've done all three of those things. Pathetic, I know, and I'm preaching here to you. These temptations we know are wrong, and yet you do it because for some perverse reason, with that wrongness comes a pleasure and we're willing to pay the price. The reason Eugene Peterson translates it, save us from ourselves and from the devil, is he's acknowledging something that James wrote in James 1 verse 14. James writes, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. In other words, what gives temptation its power is a desire rooted already inside of us. Scientists are finding that many forms of cancer leverage certain genetic materials and predispositions already in our code, in our flesh. That's the greatest betrayal is that the disease that's going to kill us is just using something already embedded in us. But that's the way it works, isn't it? Temptation is given its power because there is a dark desire in each of us for something or many things. And that power then can lead to our being enticed and dragged away. Just hold that phrase, dragged away, in your mind. It's very important. I'll come back to it in just a little bit. 
So if this is the way temptation works, that some desire in us is leveraged by the world or by the, an enemy and we're enticed and dragged away, why do we pray to God, lead us not into temptation? What's the idea? Is the picture that somehow God is leading us into temptation and we're saying, please don't do it? Is the idea that God sets moral traps for people to see if we will fall or not? I mean, that, that would paint a picture of a, a father teaching his kid to walk and then putting toys in his path, hoping to see if he trips. That is not the God we have. James, in fact, in the verse just before this one, says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if we understand this prayer is, God, please stop doing this to us. Stop setting us up for failure. Stop, stop testing if we will fall or not because you're making life harder for us. That is the worst way to understand this prayer. There's a better way for us to understand it. So at one level, the surface, most basic interpretation of this prayer is, God, I am so full of weakness. I have these desires for things I know are wrong or unwise or destructive, and yet I find myself doing them all the time. Very similar to the Apostle Paul's testimony in Romans 7, right? The good I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those things I keep doing. What's wrong with me? We know that this is true of us. And so at the most basic level, every day we're, we're learning to pray, God help me because I'm a mess. I betray myself so often. And we're up against a pretty good crafty enemy who knows how to pull our, our strings and push our buttons. But I really believe there is a deeper meaning to this whole dynamic of temptation and testing. I think there's a deeper way for us to learn to pray this part of the Lord's Prayer. And I want to drill down into that. That word that we translate temptation when it says, lead us not into temptation, it's a word that very commonly is also translated test or trial. Right? Just like a scientist would run a test to see if his theory holds, or an engineer might run a test to see if his product will stand up to duress and regular wear and tear, there's this sense in which the thing that really we're asking him not to lead us into is testing, because in testing, we encounter the evil one from whom we have to be delivered. And in testing, we come straight up against the fact that we don't have a lot of strength within ourselves. When I was younger, I used to imagine that I had all kinds of strength. I used to hear stories about um, martyrs who had faced their certain death and stay faithful to Jesus. And I always thought to myself, I'm pretty sure I would do that too. I think the older I've gotten, the more I've realized I am never, I've never been that strong. I like to tell people I'm losing my strength, but I think my ego is catching up to the reality. I've never, I think I've always been this weak my whole life. I'm just learning to admit it. Please don't leave me hanging. Some of you guys are in that exact same spot. We like to think we're so strong. But God sometimes permits testing in our lives to demonstrate to us that we have so overestimated our own strength. Because when we do that, we stop relying on Him and come to rely on ourselves. And that leads again and again to situations of defeat and disappointment. It's an admission that we are powerless. And yet in the testing, there is an element of temptation. And I want to tie those two things together. He says in the testing, or in the, in the temptation, there is an evil one we encounter, and he introduces the temptation into our lives. 
Now it says the evil one in the NIV, but most other translations translate it evil. But I think that's not the right translation. The best translation is the evil one, because the way Greek works, Greek has gender for all of their nouns. And most of the time, evil is a neuter noun, which means it's referring to a force or a concept, evil in general. But in this particular case in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus uses the third person singular masculine pronoun, and he puts the definite article, the, in front of it. So really the best translation is, it's the one who is evil, referring to a person and not a force or an idea. That's a really boring, nerdy way of saying the best way to understand this is please deliver us from that guy who is evil itself, the evil one. And in scripture, especially in the New Testament, every time that phrase is mentioned, it's a reference to the same being. We call him the devil or Satan. I can't say the word Satan without thinking of Dana Carvey's church lady. It's just part of my generation. But the whole idea is Satan, who we caricature, who we don't really understand very well, is a very prominent figure in the story of the Christian faith. And in this particular way, he shows up again and again. We first encounter Satan in the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden, don't we? And the way he's working is he is whispering lies to sow the seeds of doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve. And what is his goal there? He says things like, did he really tell you not to eat from every tree? He goes, no, that's not at all what God said. But he's sowing seeds of doubt. He's whispering seductive questions in the hope that he can seduce them away from God to turn against him. To this point in the story, God has only been good to Adam and Eve. He has never done a wrong thing to them. And yet after a conversation with Satan, they start to wonder, huh, is God holding something back from us that's good? And as a result, they're seduced into a betrayal of God. We then catch up with Satan a little later, in, and this is not the only places he appears, but there's two prominent ones in the Old Testament. The second time we run into Satan prominently is in the book of Job. Do you remember the book of Job? When we're feeling kind of low in life, it's weird, there's this perverse pleasure in reading Job over and over, right? Job is a story of suffering. It is one of the most profound poetic stories of human suffering recorded anywhere. And in that story, we find a man, Job, who God describes as blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. He's flush with cash, he's wealthy, he's healthy, lots of kids. On every metric by which ancient people measured goodness of life, Job was on top of the world. And Satan comes in to the presence of God and says, yeah, I've been walking around the world, I see how it works, God. All the people who really like you, they like you because you gave them an awesome life. I wonder if he'd still praise you if his life weren't so good. And God says, oh, I think he will because Job has a heart that loves me. He has a pure heart. And Satan predicts that if he messes with Job's life and takes away all his good things, takes away his well-being, his sanity, his health, his wealth, his children, then, and I quote, He will curse you to your face, God. He will curse you to your face. This guy who praises you in the good times will turn his back on you and curse you to your face if you take away all his goodies. And God says, I'll take that bet. And so with his permission, Satan goes into Job's life and messes with him. And through it all, what is Satan's number one goal or mission in Job's life? To lead him to a place of such despair and anguish 
that he will turn his back on God. Whenever we see Satan show up in the story of the Bible, he has one mission over and over and over, and that is to sow the seeds of doubt, to create seduction or lies, so that in the end, his mission is always to steal from God the people he's won. Satan hates God, and any chance he gets, he tries to thwart the work of God that he has already done. The thing that delights Satan's heart the most is to rip people away from the God who loves them. And his greatest victory is not when they feel dragged away against their, their will, but when they choose to walk away because they believe something about God that is not true. That doesn't mean that the things they believe that are lies are not easy to believe. Sometimes life makes those lies really easy to believe. And yet we see a picture in Job's life, and later we'll see it in Jesus' life, of fighting for your faith in God, even when you can't see the faithfulness of God in your story. Satan has one goal, and that is to entice and drag us away from God. I want to drill down a little bit into this temptation that Jesus faced in the opening chapter of his ministry. This Jesus who's teaching us the Lord's Prayer went through a profound experience at the start of his earthly ministry. It says quite simply, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. you got to remember, he's coming right off the spiritual high of his baptism, where large crowds were gathered, the most prominent figure in, in the religious world at the time, John the Baptist, paused everything as Jesus came into the water, baptized him in front of a huge crowd, and then a voice thunders from heaven as a, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And this voice says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. I don't know if you've ever had a spiritual high like that, but... That's got to get you feeling pretty good about yourself and your mission in the world. And immediately following this spiritual high, there comes this period in the wilderness. I'm not sure why that so often happens. Have you ever had that where you come back from a retreat or a conference where God met you and it was such a mountaintop experience and that's the the day you return home that your family just chooses to have the vilest attitude towards you? And you had these delusions of grandeur that you'd come home from this retreat and you'd be like, hello family, I love you in Jesus' name so much. I will always be patient and forgiving. And they'd push your buttons for like 24 straight hours and you're like, that's it, I've had it. I hate all of you. What's the point of retreats anyway? They never last and we get discouraged. It so often happens that following a spiritual high comes a barren period in the wilderness. I'm still trying to understand why God allows that dynamic. I have a few theories, but I can't be dogmatic about it. But it happens a lot. And in this wilderness, and this is a picture of the Judean wilderness, it looks pretty much the same way it always has. There's just nothing there. It's a reminder that when human beings don't intervene and cultivate and change the earth, in places like this, what exists is nothing. You can't live in a place like that. Water is hard to find. There's no source of food. There's no stores. There's no other people. It's just 
emptiness and barrenness. And that's the symbol and the reality of the wilderness. And in that place, Jesus has to face a number of temptations, each of which helps us understand something about the way that we will face temptation spiritually when we're up against a hard time. That first temptation is that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I don't want to speak very long on each of these. I'm going to just blaze through it, but hear this. This is not a chosen and scheduled fast. I've known people who have done 40-day fasts. I feel like God is pressing on my heart to attempt one before I die. Maybe just before I die, I don't know. But um, I've never done a 40-day fast. I've heard from people who've done it that it's one of the hardest but most life-changing experiences. It's not one of those things that Jesus is going through. He didn't set off into the wilderness to go, for 40 days I'm going to seek the heart of God. It says the Spirit just led him out there. And he, he was led out there, and what he found out there was nothing. There was nothing, nothing was provided for him. Even Elijah at least had ravens sent by God to deliver food and water. Jesus gets nothing. He's alone in the middle of a wasteland, and the only person he's got for company is his arch enemy, and that's it. This voice of evil that speaks lies and discouragement without ceasing 24-7. Some of us know exactly what Jesus felt in that place. We live through it. I know for a fact that some of you are living through that even right now. These places of prolonged scarcity and suffering. Scarcity and suffering that lasts so long you feel like this is permanent. It's never going to end. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Maybe It's depression. I've been learning more and more about the experience of depression because many people I deeply love battle with this. And I have to say, I don't fully comprehend it, but I feel I need to in order to love them well. And the more I read about it, the more it feels exactly like what Jesus experienced. To be trapped in a place of nothingness. The only companion being a voice of darkness and defeat and discouragement and death that will not shut up. Other people face the wilderness of chronic pain or even terminal illness. An addiction with such power they can never seem to defeat it no matter how hard they try. For some their wilderness is a broken marriage that seems irrecoverable. For others, it's singleness that will not end. When will I find someone? Yet for others, it's infertility. Maybe it's financial hardship. Am I ever going to make any real money? This world is full of wildernesses that break people. And if you find yourself in that wilderness, what will happen inside of you is a feeling of isolation an utter aloneness, and the only companion is the liar, the accuser, the one who is the bringer of death. And in that place, the great temptation will be to abandon God because you believe He has already abandoned you. This 
This is why we pray the Lord's Prayer. It's not just so that He will strengthen me so that I don't have that second brownie. That matters. It's of course important. But we pray that on the daily ups and downs of life so that we learn in our wilderness how to respond to that deep temptation against the soul the same way Jesus did. Jesus felt it fully. It wasn't easier for Him than it would have been for us. And here's this temptation Forget God. He's not bringing you anything. Why don't you do this for yourself? He's already forgotten you. And Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see Jesus in his wasteland of nothing, speaking back to that voice of death. And he says, Look, I agree with you that that's the way it feels. But I will hang on to my God. And if I can't eat his bread, I will eat his words. Because I will not turn away from the only one who loves me. Jesus faces a second temptation. The devil takes him to the top of the holy city. Has him stand on the highest point of the temple. I don't know if I have a picture of it, and I don't, but... If you ever see a picture of the old temple, it's about a couple hundred feet up in the air, and he takes him to the precipice of that. How many of you have a fear of heights? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a fear of heights. I actually love heights. I, I get excited by them. But I get why some people are afraid of heights. When you're standing at the edge of a very high place, there is this animalistic, instinctive fear that kicks in, and for good reason. That just means if you're afraid of heights, you're smarter than I am. Some evolutionary self-protective measure was removed in my brain. But you're supposed to be afraid of heights. It's supposed to cause anxiety and fear. And what he says is, I dare you to jump off of that. And then he quotes scripture, Psalm 91, 11 to 12. He goes, ah, you're, you're going to be fine. Because if you're really the Messiah and these words are about you, then it says you're going to be fine. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's giving him this picture. Go ahead and jump off. What's going to happen if you're really the Messiah is that these angels come fluttering down and they'll hold you so that you will go landing softly on the ground. You won't get hurt. What's this about? The one thing fear does to all of us is it makes us desperate to find a place of safety, some source of security, because you can't live in fear for very long without losing something essential to yourself. When we're afraid and we don't do anything to mitigate that fear, it begins to destroy our psyche. It does permanent damage to us. You can't live in fear nonstop and be okay. And so the natural instinct for us when we're afraid is to scramble to find something that makes us feel safe. A guardrail, a rope, anything, another person. I've told you several times the story of the girl I saved from drowning who tried to use me as a flotation device. She tried to murder me, guys. But she wasn't trying to murder me. She was just grasping for something not to drown. And she found me. She held me underwater. I was glug-glugging. That's what fear does to a person. Anything within my reach that makes me feel safe because I can't stay in this place of terror and threat forever. 
God intends to be that source of safety. Probably the most frequent command in all of Scripture is don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be afraid. It's never just don't be afraid. That's what we do to our kids. Stop being scared. Oh, okay. I'll just stop being scared of everything. You can't command someone to not be afraid just by itself. That's nonsense. Fathers especially there to their sons, don't we? Stop being a chicken. Don't be afraid of dogs. You can't. I was afraid of dogs when I was a kid. And no amount of scolding cured me of my fear of dogs. Fear is a response. It's often a sane response to something. But God says, don't be afraid because that thing you fear is smaller than me and I'm with you. You will never face a fear alone. You'll think you are, but you won't be. Every fear you face, what God says is, if you belong to me, every fear you face, you will face with him. And that's why you can conquer fear. Because he intends to be the most reliable, most consistent source of safety in the face of fear. The problem is that if we're not walking with God in a way that he feels real to us, if we're going through a season where he feels far away and invisible, and then you confront your fear, what happens is he feels impossibly distant, invisible. And so you're scrambling to find something more tangible that makes you feel less afraid. Do you remember how scary it was at the beginning of COVID when we had these pictures of all those movies we've seen like Contagion or 12 monkeys or whatever, like this, this zombie apocalypse, this horrible viral infection affecting the whole world. I remember bringing my mail in from the mailbox and wiping them down envelopes. So what if that dude sneezed before he put my envelope in the mailbox? I'm like, I gotta clean. And it created a neurotic fear. Because you can't sterilize the earth. Just walking outside, you're like, what if someone coughed? 30 seconds ago in this very spot I just walked in. I walked into this cloud of COVID and I'm just breathing it in through my mask. And after a while you get nuts because the world is full of things that make you feel afraid. And I remember grappling with the the intellectual acknowledgement that this is futile. I could try, but I can't guarantee a thing. Some people actually thought they could. I just want to tell them it's good that you're trying, but listen, you cannot sterilize the world can't. And I tried, and then I gave up. But that Lysol wipe, I went to Menards, Walmart, Home Depot. One day I clean, I think I sent you guys a photo of all the stuff. I said, if you, couldn't, if you couldn't find Lysol, we got it, man. Just come to church and grab a can. I cleaned them out. Spent a couple hundred bucks on disinfecting solutions. Those were a tangible source of safety. This is a tangible source of safety. I'm not an anti-masker. I'm not telling you not to wear it. But I'm saying that this is a tangible thing which brings such comfort. If I could just do this, I'll be okay. We need those things when we're afraid. We need a source of safety. And if we enter that place of fear without feeling like God is real in our lives, we will grasp for anything that feels real. Maybe it'll be your wealth. Maybe it'll be your intelligence. Maybe it'll be your tribe or your network of friends and family that makes you feel safe. 
Maybe it's the rationality of science and logic that makes you feel safe. Here's something less tangible. Maybe it's a political or philosophical ideology that makes you feel safe. Maybe it's nationalism that makes you feel safe. Maybe you feel okay about yourself in the world if you could cling to something that just feels real and tangible. Now, it's interesting that the devil doesn't just dare Jesus, but he quotes scripture in daring him. At first, it seems like relying on God, dependence on God, doesn't it? Jump off, your father will protect you. Doesn't that sound really right? Like, oh yeah, duh, if I'm the Messiah, I will jump just to show you, Satan. It looks like dependence on God, but the truth is it's self-reliance painted with a Bible brush. That's a scary thing. Where we think that we have found something that represents God and we cling to it more than we cling to God himself. I've seen people do this with family. I was taught, so were you, by James Dobson and focus on the family. Family matters, family first, family matters. And from that, many of us turn family into an idol. I'll go do anything for you, God, as long as it doesn't affect my family negatively. I will sacrifice anything for you as long as I can take care of my family first. And we thought to ourselves, doesn't the Bible teach that? Family first, family most, family everything. And because it reflects something of God, we turned it into a God. And so many people I know could not follow the leading of God over their lives because of family. I'm not saying we shouldn't love family. I'm saying that it's very easy for our idols to be coated with a thin veneer of scripture to validate that we have stopped trusting God and started trusting this other thing more. That is the danger and toxicity of idols is that they sneak up on us. If I told you, here's a block of wood, worship it, you would throw it in my face because we're not that stupid. But the whole point of an idol is it's a God I can hold in my hand, something tangible, something that feels real, and something I can control and interact with. I think that's why little kids play with dolls. Here, you sit here and have fun with me because my friends won't come over. You have tea with me and you have tea with me, and you can control those friends. I think that's what an idol is for us. And just because it reflects something of God doesn't mean it's not an idol. I want you to think about how much freedom is a biblical ideal. But in this country, freedom can become an idol just as quickly as anything else. As long as I'm free, I'll be okay. What if God called you to be a prisoner in chains for the gospel, just like he did to so many of his faithful servants? I can't do that. That denies freedom, and I'll fight against anything that hampers my freedom. The freedom to bear arms, the freedom to whatever. Do you understand that the temptation sometimes in the face of fear is to find something close and tangible to trust even more than God? And the danger, and I have to tell you this, you got to watch this in your own life, is that we believe it's okay because we quote scripture in support of our idolatry. Gosh, so much more to say, but I got to end this thing, so... I could go whole sermon on that. There's just, it's been such a, a strong conviction in my heart this week. Let me give you the last temptation that Jesus faced. He took him to a really high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, 
in all their splendor. What do you think that means? I mean, there are times when you're dazzled by what we can do as human beings, by the sheer glory. Uh, there's a whole YouTube channel, a whole thing of, 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 uh, of videos called People Are Awesome. And you watch, you're like, huh, people are awesome. I mean, it's amazing what people do. He probably showed them the cities of the world. He showed them the military might. Who isn't stirred a little bit by these great displays on military parades of, holy cow, look at all that power. Probably show them palaces, luxury toys. Dang, that's a pretty nice boat. Probably show them, and this is probably the most powerful one, the adoration of the crowds of followers. I find it interesting that the word follower is such an important word in the young generation today. It's the thing people seem to want the most. It's followers. It's what gives you status, security, place in this world. What Satan is doing is he's showing them all of this and he says, this is supposed to be yours. Where is it in this dry, barren place? You don't have a house. You got one change of clothes. You got 12 losers following you and you're supposed to be the son of God. If he's a good father, why don't you have any of this stuff? Even the sons of men have these things and you don't. It's the oldest lie on earth. It's the same lie he told to Adam and Eve at the beginning. Don't you know that God is withholding something good from you? Why would he do that? What's wrong with the thing you want? Imagine what a good man like you could do with a kingdom, a city, an army, with wealth, with fame, with influence. Imagine what a good person like you could do with all those things. And he's seducing Jesus, tempting him to believe that somehow this God who said he was faithful is withholding something good from him. It's the seed of doubt that has led to so many people leaving God behind. Because the last thing you want to do is worship someone who is withholding good things from you. Have you ever felt that way? You see everyone else getting the thing you most long for. I remember a, a young woman in the early years of our church saying, you know, it was so painful the other day. I was with the, the women's fellowship, and she was trying to get pregnant for a really long time. And another woman said, oh, man, I'm so, I, I can't believe I'm pregnant again. It just keeps happening. Because she was so fertile, this other woman. And the woman was just talking. I don't think she was trying to be hurtful or proud. But just when you're in that place, and you're like, why is it that some people get pregnant even when they don't want to? They're like, oh, Lord, not another baby. And you're just yearning for one. When you're single and you long to find someone, you see a married couple hating each other. You're like, you're so stupid. You don't know what you've got. I long to have what you have. Why are you throwing it away? And you see everyone else getting so naturally and easily what you wish you had. How does that start to make you feel about God who says, I am Jehovah Jireh, God who provides. It's easy in that place. None of these are temptations because we're supposed to be naturally strong against them. It is easy to believe these things. 
I've been in that place where I felt like, why does God withhold something good from me? It's easy in that place to believe the lie that God has somehow lied to you, is withholding something from you. And that seed of doubt tempts you to believe that maybe you've given your fealty and your worship to the wrong one. Satan says, look, all the stuff God's supposed to give you, he's, in, he's not doing it, I will. Not I can, it's I will. God could give you all this, but for whatever reason, he isn't. I can give you all these things, and unlike him, I will give it to you. Let me wrap it up. There's a time when the disciples found themselves on a boat on the water with Jesus, and a ferocious storm hit them out of the blue. It was such a bad storm that these seasoned fishermen, these men who lived their lives on boats, were terrified that they would drown. And they looked around for their master, and they found him snoring at the bottom of the ship. And so they turned to him, Matthew records, they went and woke him, probably not gently. It wasn't like, Jesus... They probably shook him awake and said, Jesus, and listen to what they say. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. You know, we're meant to pray the Lord's Prayer regularly, even daily. And there are a lot of common temptations that we need to pray this prayer about. The little tests, anytime you have to make a decision, it's worth praying this. Lord, lead us not into testing and temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. I should pray this when I'm drawn to that second brownie or when I want to click a link that I shouldn't click. But there will be tests of our faith that are like this day for the disciples. I'm not talking about just a, a tough choice. But I'm talking about the kind of test that wants to unravel your relationship with God. There are lies whispered in that testing that are so easy to believe when you're afraid, when you're in the wilderness of suffering and scarcity, when you feel that maybe something good that God has given to others, He's withholding from you. Those lies are so easy to believe. And we face an enemy, the evil one, who has only ever had one mission in this world. And that is to pull away from God the people he's won to himself. The greatest cruelty is he wants us to walk away from that God on our own, to choose it. These tests of our faith, and each of us will face them, will be so intense, it won't matter how much experience, how many resources you have, you will fear for your survival. You will know in your heart that this is the big one, the one that might sink your faith. And in this, Jesus teaches us what to do. He doesn't say, fix your attitude. 
He doesn't say, learn this. He doesn't lecture us. He says, this is what you do. You pray like those disciples in that boat. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. In the great storms of life, the big tests, the answer is not information. It's not attitude adjustment. It is prayer. It's the only weapon that will save you. We call him Savior for a reason. He's the one you turn to. You say, God, I don't have the strength to get through this right now. I'm going to lose my faith. I'm going to turn my back on you any minute. Help me. The strongest people don't fight this. They cry out to their Savior. When that test comes, if we've learned to pray this prayer that Jesus taught us every day, maybe on that day, we'll be able to pray it with the same urgency and desperation that they had. Maybe that day, we will know in our heart of hearts, He is our Savior. And He can preserve us. I've said a lot, so I'm going to stop now. But I'm going to leave a minute of quiet because I think God has more to say just to you. So would you listen quietly in stillness for Him? Let Him speak to you. Don't fight Him. And I'll come back and close us the word of prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.